Okay, welcome back to the Goldmine Podcast. Today, our guest will be Mike Greenblatt. Now, Mike is a longtime Goldmine author and editor. He has his own columns um, online at goldminemag.com. But he also wrote, to me, the definitive book on Woodstock, Back to Yasker's Farm. And he wrote it on the 50th anniversary, but it's still out there. Penguin Books. You could still get it at your bookstore. You can also get it at the Goldmine Shop at goldminemag.com. And even though it was written on the 50th anniversary, it's still relevant, of course, because Mike lived it. He was there and he went through the whole experience. It's a beautiful book. It's hardcover filled with a lot of photographs and details about when the bands actually went on. And uh, for this new issue that we put out, August, September issue of Goldmine, that's also in Barnes and Noble and Books a Million, and you can pick that up. Uh, Mike wrote the 10 best and worst things about Woodstock, 1969. Uh, so I want to welcome Mike. Mike, welcome. You've been on the podcast before. Welcome back. Thank you. I always love doing your podcast. Uh, you as a, as a unlike other podcasters, are actually a real friend of mine. Yeah, that's correct. Now, one of the things I want to talk about first is, is your book. Now, like I said, even though it was written for the 50th anniversary, it's still relevant. People can pick it up and enjoy it very much. They could After they buy it, they can look at it every August on the anniversary. And if they're there, they can bring back a lot of memories. Now, what I want to talk about is your article, The 10 Best and Worst Things About Woodstock 69. Uh, first off, how would you, what is your opinion? Uh, speak about the difference of the original event and these offshoots, uh, offshoot Woodstock events. To me, there's only one event, and that was in 69. Um, I didn't go to the other two. I'm not sure why they even put them on. Um, some think it was a cash cow, whatever. But one didn't go well at all. And one went okay. But what's your opinion on them? There's only one Woodstock. Yeah. And that was the one in 1969. It was a cosmic accident. Despite the fact that there was not enough water, not enough food, not enough bathrooms, the weather was horrible. A monsoon ripped through us on Sunday. There was not one instance of reported violence. Uh, we were the so-called peace and love generation, and we proved it over those four days. Um, whereas opposed to Woodstock 99, there's two feature film documentaries about that horrible, horrible event. It was like the other side of the coin. <clears throat> Yeah, it was indeed the flip side of the coin, no doubt about it. Um, there were no rapes. There was no violence at Woodstock in 69. Uh, the man next to you was your brother. And the woman next to you, whether she was topless or not, was your sister. And we all shared a similar political philosophy. And it was almost uh, too good to be true. Um, it, in fact, it got me into... Uh, a career of writing about music because when I came home, all I did was try to tell people exactly what I had been through. I couldn't believe it. Um, 
and the fact that I was tripping for the Sunday portion uh, just made it into a big, it was like a phantasmagoria, a psychedelic uh, pinwheel that I just stood there and I just couldn't believe what was going on around me. Um, I'm glad I took the brown acid. Well, that's those are the two things you mentioned in the best of category, which was the love and peace and togetherness, which you're here to announce that it was not a myth. It really no. was amazing that all these people gathered and even though a few people died, but also, as you put it, people were born uh, like any other day in any other city or town in America. Uh, the people who died, wasn't it of uh, exhaustion or I can't remember exactly. Maybe one people, one person, one person got run over by a tractor. Oof. Uh, they were in their sleeping bags. The tractor went right over them. Another person overdosed. Right. And I forget how the third person died. But, you know, in cities of that size, people die and people are born. And, and Woodstock was, was no different. Right. And like you said, no violence, which is amazing. Um, which, of course, Altamont would prove the, uh, the opposite and bring the 60s peace and love generation kind of to a halt. But uh, let's not get sidetracked. You also said the brown asset was a very good thing for you. Now, some probably would disagree. And there was even an announcement to warn you off of buying that. Yeah, that became the punchline of my book tour when they said from the stage, don't take the brown acid. I said, oh, shit, I just took it. <laughs> and when I did my book tour in 2019 before the world stopped, I, I, in fact, I can't, looking back, I can't believe I had such a great year in 2019 talking about the book and, and uh, doing almost stand up uh, at these various venues about the book. And then everything stopped in 2020. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I got it in. And I'm glad I got to uh, travel around the tri-state area to talk to people about the book. And um, it's it's still selling. In the sacred land itself, you went back there? I went back there a number of times. First was to interview uh, the curator of the new Bethel Woods Museum uh, and Performing Center for the Arts, right on the exact same plot of land that Woodstock took place. And amazingly enough, when I went back a second time to go in the author's tent and sell my book and sign autographs and pose for pictures, the same exact monsoon that hit wow. us in 1969 revisited the same locale on the same day, and we had to be evacuated. I'll never forget it. I couldn't believe that monsoon came back to haunt us 50 years later. Did you have the mud, too? There was mud. There was confusion. I was carrying uh, boxes of books uh, in a pouring rain, trying to find some way out of there. I, I couldn't believe the same storm hit us in the same location. This time you weren't ago. on the brown assets. <laughs> only this time, only this time I, I, was, I was almost 70 instead of being 18. So it was a little different. Well, you know, it is possible, right, that maybe you got a the good batch of the acid and uh, there were bad batches. Uh, I don't know much about uh, acid or hallucinogenics, but uh, maybe that was possible. And the lady who gave it to you, you said was, didn't she give you bread? 
yeah, she was a very nice older older woman, um, and she gave me a loaf of bread and uh, and a pill, and I devoured the bread because I was starving by that time. And I had the pill. And sometimes I think if I didn't take the brown acid, I would have been really bumming out at the weather and the situation. I might have left. Mm. Uh, but because I was so tripping and so heavily high that it all became psychedelic, a tableau right in front of me that mm. I couldn't believe what I was, I was, I was in the middle of it. And I couldn't drive home if I wanted to anyway at that I point. Right. Plus, we didn't know where the car was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that would not be good while you were um, on acid trying to find the car. Um, now, what? How did that come out? Come up? The lady gave you bread and said, "By the way, you want some acid too." <laughs> was, I don't remember. Uh, all I remember is she gave me the bread and she go here, take this too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I said okay. I had done. We had done acid numerous times in the late 60s, uh, many times on the way to New York City to go to the Fillmore East. Yeah, uh, I'll never forget uh, tripping while seeing Pink Floyd at the Fillmore East. And uh, uh, I remember when they did the song called uh, Careful With That Axe, Eugene, from the album Uma Guma. And uh, it's 10 minutes of mellifluous organ and then the scream. And when they shouted that scream out. It freaked me out so much. I got up and I ran out of the Fillmore and I ran down Second Avenue, hyperventilating and sweating. And I made my way into, into this club and there was this crazy black guy on the bandstand playing three saxophones at once. And I stood there looking at him until they kicked me out. Well, that was my introduction to jazz. And it turned out to be Rasan Roland Kirk who was playing these crazy instruments. I'll never forget it. And then I went, went back to my seat and finished the Pink Floyd show. But the point is, <laughs> we had done acid numerous times uh, and it was always oh, wonderful. So it wasn't a surprise. No. Um, now, you, best of, you, you mentioned favorite acts. Sly Stone, the <clears throat> band, 10 years after, Johnny Winter, and... Maybe talk each about each one and why they were so good. Let's start off with Sly Stone, who is quite a personality and knows in his own right. But man, can that cat play? What what great music he's put out throughout his career. Um, I know he's kind of a recluse now, right? But I was uh, it was like three three or four in the morning, and we had been up a really long time. I was fading fast, and um... Sly resurrected you. Sly resurrected me. He was, I had never, ever seen such heavy funk with the horns and the crazy lead guitarist and, and Sly on the organ telling us to shout out the word higher at the top of our lungs and flash the peace sign. I know it sounds corny, but, it, but at the time uh, it was profound. And indeed we shouted out the word higher and we danced. And I'll never forget, I had to go to the bathroom and I saw an empty bottle and I, I, I peed in this empty bottle and I thought, ooh, I'm taking a, taking a leak on the sly, so to speak. And I remember telling that to a few folks and we were all hysterical. Of course, we were all stoned, so I guess it seemed more funny than it was. But the point is, I had never heard 
such music. I had gone to see Sly and the Family Stone a couple of weeks earlier at the Cafe Wa or one of those small Greenwich Village nightclubs and Jimi Hendrix came up and jammed with them on hire. Uh, and that was the only time I ever got to see Jimmy is when he jammed with Sly and the Family Stone a couple of weeks before Woodstock um, because we couldn't stay for Jimmy at Woodstock. We just had to leave. It, 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 it was too much. We were tired and hungry and thirsty and cold and wet and very uncomfortable. And we tried so hard to stay for Jimmy. But Jimmy didn't play until like 10 o'clock the next morning to a sea of garbage. Most of the people had left already. Yeah. Uh, and and we just had to leave. But yes. Yeah, Still, so if I had to take a time machine back, I think I'd pick. Start with the who and just chill out from there. <laughs> well. After Slime the Family Stone, I fell asleep. Yeah, I know. You had to conk out. I, I fell asleep. Even the who couldn't wake me. <laughs> I was Which dead. Is amazing. I was dead asleep during the who set. <clears throat> and then came Jefferson Airplane, and they came on at like seven in the morning. I also slept right through Jefferson Airplane. But I did talk to members of Jefferson Airplane. And um I do have some stories about what happened during the, the Who's set with Abby Hoffman jumping up on the stage. Um, and Did getting, Townsend really kick him in the ass or what? Townsend hit him with the butt of his guitar head. And I, I, in my research, I realized that that wasn't the first time that Townsend got violent with somebody that, that got on the stage. There's a story at uh, the Fillmore, uh, a fire broke out. And the, uh, the, the fire attendant ran down the aisle to, to get on stage and tell everybody that they had to evacuate. And Townsend hit him on the head with his guitar. <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully not too hard. Yeah, um, hopefully yeah. not too hard. But 10 years okay. after, those three bands yeah. on Sunday night, 10 years after the band and Johnny Winter, back to back to back, might have been the three greatest bands in a row ever because 10 years after we had we had been to the Fillmore to see them numerous times we mm. were well aware that Alvin Lee was the fastest guitarist in the world and they played this Woodchopper's Ball by Woody Herman big band uh, but they played it rock and uh, help me this great blues of course I'm going home which they stretched out to unimaginable lengths and they were thrilling absolutely thrilling at Woodstock, and my friend, um, my friend wanted to leave. He he was he was straight the whole weekend. He didn't so much as smoke a joint, and he was bumming out. But we had a, an agreement that we wouldn't leave until both of us wanted to leave. So he was a great sport. I wasn't going to leave during ten years after, or the band. Boy, were they great! Their harmonies and the fact that they all kept switching instruments. Hmm. Levon would leave the drum set and play the mandolin. Uh, Danko would leave his bass and go play the drums. The other guy would leave his guitar and go play the organ. I mean, they kept switching instruments and they sounded so exquisitely like the record that it was so real and organic. And I'll never forget how great it was. And then Johnny Winter just blew us all away. Johnny Winter was so great, pounding the blues into submission. His brother, Edgar, wailing on the saxophone. It was so good that even Neil didn't want to leave during Johnny Winter. But then they introduced Blood, Sweat, and Tears. 
we, we thought we were going to see the Al Cooper version of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We, we didn't realize that they had kicked him out of his own band. Yeah. And there was this, this husky Canadian dude singing that stupid spinning wheel song. And we looked at each other and we said, all right, we're out of here. That we had, we had to leave. But wait, wait, now there's there's an added story to that. You actually got to like that singer who replaced Al Cooper. <laughs> you became a fan. You just didn't like the spinning wheel song. Anymore. I became a fan a few decades later when you assigned me to interview uh, David Clayton Thomas. Yep. He's a good blues singer. He he sings some good blues. Yeah, he does. And he had an album out that was. Uh, I was love a- his voice, you know, back with the blood, sweat, and tears, and. Uh, but you know, I, I appreciate both versions of those bands. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is, Santana, didn't you go get a hot dog or something during Santana? Did yeah, Santana came on early afternoon the day before Saturday. It was a beautiful day. Uh, but I had just seen Santana at the uh, at the Schaefer Bowl on the site of the, the 64 World's Fair in Flushing Meadows. They, they opened for Buddy Miles and a band called Pacific Gas and Electric. And I loved them. But because of the fact that I had just seen them, I told my friend Neil, I- I'm going to go get a hot dog. And at that time, the, the hot dog stands still had hot dogs. They would they would run out famously a couple of hours later, but uh, it was unbelievable. I was listening to them the whole time though, and boy did they that that drum solo that nineteen year old Michael Shreve took during yeah. Soul Sacrifice it has to go down in history. And I've since interviewed him about it. And Carlos was nice enough to interview with me for this book. He was tripping on mescaline during the uh, the set, but. Man, they were the everyone knows they 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 claimed their stardom from that set. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I did I did wander around. Yeah, where who are you buying these hot dogs from? It's not like it was Nathan's famous, right? I mean it was I don't know. You know, they they had these stands and then they ran out of hot dogs. And I said, Oh, well, where can I go to get another hot dog? And they said, That's just it, sir. There's no food left. They didn't tell you to go to the hog farm, which was close well, by with food. That's the funny thing. The hog farm was feeding people along hey. lines. I did not know anything about the hog farm. You know when I learned about the hog farm? A year later when I saw the movie. That's when I first learned there was <laughs> a hog farm. Pissed off. <laughs> I, mean, I wish I I wish I knew about the hog farm. The yeah. only the only people that the only guy that fed me was this 300 pound Hell's Angels guy who had this this factory big can of cold raviolios. Mm. And normally you'd think it disgusting, but he would go into this can and dole out spoonfuls of raviolios. And I waited online and it was so good that I went back at the end of the line and got another taste. But no, I didn't know about the uh the hog farm at the time. Some of that stuff would be so foreign to the kids today. I mean, a big can of raviolios. They probably don't even know what raviolios are. <laughs> <laughs> it was canned spaghetti. Yes, I know. Um, Boyardi. Speaking of which, what was the bathroom situation like? You, you said you used a bottle once. Where, where would you go? Just anywhere? 
Well, thank God I didn't have to go too often that weekend. I, I, I didn't eat, so I didn't have to do anything. Uh, the bathrooms were atrocious. They, they were just atrocious. Uh, they were they, they spilled over and, and you didn't want to even go near them. Uh, and I didn't have to. So thank God for small favors. Uh, I didn't have to use the bathrooms. Um, they were like those porto potties back then? Yeah. Yeah. Really? They were nasty. They were nasty. That You know, there was a lot of mistakes made by the folks that put the festival on. And uh, that's why even worse, even worse mistakes years later when they some of them tried to put it on again in 99 and so on. Yeah. But on this one, the mistakes that were made did not translate into violence, which yeah. still amazes me to this day. No other generation, I think, would have handled that well. The lateness, waiting around. I don't think any other generation would have handled that well. This no, not at all. How about... About eight hours before the, the music, we were told that the music was going to start at 9 a.m. It didn't start at 9 a.m., nor 10, 11, 12, nor 1, 2, 3, or 4. It was five <laughs> o'clock, eight hours of waiting around. And then we would have loved anybody that got on stage. But Richie Havens wound up playing one of the most iconic sets. Yeah. Uh, we loved Richie Havens. Now, you said the most cathartic experience was the fish cheer, right? Yeah, uh, it was Saturday afternoon. Uh, we were very high. Uh, and it was in between bands. And Country Joe walked out, who Country Joe wrote the foreword to my book. He was very nice. And um, Country Joe came out on a, with a borrowed guitar and he was playing a few country songs and everybody totally ignored him. Totally ignored him. It was like a big family picnic going on and he was trying to play. And then, so he walked off the stage and, and we ignored him so much. We didn't even realize he walked off the stage, but he came back. And that's when he asked us to give him an F and we shouted out F, <laughs> give me a U <laughs> and we shouted out U, give me a C and we shouted out C, give me a K and we shouted out K. And he said, what's that spell? And that's when we shouted out that word and it was cathartic and it was hilarious and it represented pure and extreme freedom. 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, however many were there at that time were shouting out that one word and he asked us seven times what that word was and we answered him seven times. It was the greatest moment of Woodstock and you'd think something so silly could have such profound importance but there was just something about shouting out that word in public with others also shouting out that word that I'll, I'll remember for the rest of my life. Yeah. Plus there was so much going on at the time. Um, kind of like what's going on today. There was so much frustration and anger and, you know, building up that um, there was cathartic. I'm sure. We all went to Woodstock thinking, we were going to be drafted yeah. and sent to fight an illegal and immoral war halfway around the globe. We suffered under the yoke of that responsibility because the draft was still in our lives. So it was very intense. Politics was a major subplot of, of Woodstock. Yeah. And, and I don't think anyone understood the domino theory of the war. I mean, let alone 
uh, you know, some some educated uh, older people, you know, didn't understand it either. Um, everyday common people um, that work nine to five, you know, so it was like, what are we fighting for? Um, you know, that was that was the I'm sure I didn't live through it. I was alive, but that certainly wasn't a, a worry of mine. You were like two. <laughs> How old were you in 1969? Four? Uh, I was four at that time. Yeah, you were four. No, you didn't have to no, worry I was more train. worried about my Tonka train. You know, I could care less about uh, <laughs> what was going on in the world around me. Sometimes I wish I was still like that. <laughs> what you cared about? <laughs> uh, well, but, set by Joan Baez crystallized the problem. Oh, because uh, Friday night she finished the show and her husband david harris was in prison for uh avoiding the draft mm. and i mean that's that's really something to be in prison for and, and she played that great protest song um i thought i heard joe hill last night and of course joe hill is a martyr for union for the union they they they, they killed him and uh it's 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 a great song it's it's a great liberal union song and when she finished it was almost like we were all in tears uh we had stayed up so late to listen to her and her voice was so beautiful and there she was barefoot and singing just with an acoustic guitar about joe hill and uh and some other songs um yeah that's when i met the crying girl and we we solved all the world's problems at five o'clock in the morning and I fell in <laughs> love with her. I never got her name. Well, it was that connection, right? That you'll never forget. Right. She lives in this book. So there she you lives go. In the book. And then the next day I forgot about her and I met the laughing girl in the lake. And <laughs> it's funny because usually sure she wasn't the same girl. No, it was a, it was a different. <laughs> <laughs> usually when, uh, when you're 18, and you meet a girl for the first time and you share a connection, you're usually not both naked. Right. Uh, but we were. And we were in the lake. And uh, I told her about our wonderful spot that we had, we had. I mean, we were like right there, right in front of the stage. So one of you stood there while the other ventured out. You always... Yeah, we never left. We never both left our spot. And we always found the spot coming back because our neighbors to the left of us erected a flag with a big peace sign on it. So I could always see that flag and that oh. peace sign. So I knew where Neil was. The only time that we got in trouble was after the monsoon came and Neil left to find a phone booth to call our moms mm. and tell them we were all right because the TV news had declared it a disaster area and everybody was they didn't realize how much fun we were having they thought the whole thing was a nightmare and so did my mother i'm sure and um that's when the the acid kicked in at the end of joe cocker set and it got really dark and the winds whipped up and they made an announcement they're going to have to stop the music and the music stopped dead cold stopped for three hours, mm. there was no music and it poured. I mean, really poured. And all our stuff was still back at the car. 
I didn't have any clothing for the, for the, or no blankets, no tent, no, no anything, shorts and a t-shirt that I had been wearing since Thursday. And man, it was pouring and Neil wasn't there. And I was, I started to panic and it wasn't fun anymore. And it was part of the experience. And good thing I was on the brown acid uh, because it made it into an adventure. It was like a, it was like one of those survival movies. Yeah, you didn't. This was obviously one of the worst parts, and you you talk about it. You didn't do any mud races, though. There were people doing mud races. Hell no, I wasn't interested in covering myself with mud. The uh, the, the the great spot in front of the stage had turned into a lake of mud, uh. and I, I couldn't sit back down. So I had to just stand there for the longest time and and look at the people that were around me and what they were doing and how they coped. And I just stood there. Hmm. Interesting. Now, good thing those, <laughs> good thing you weren't having uh, a bad time when some of the acts you didn't appreciate uh, came on. Uh, you said that you mostly disappointed in Tim Harding, uh, Tim Harden, because you really liked his music, but he disappointed you because he was, I guess he was tripping himself, but he, he was in a no, bad he, he, um, <clears throat> he was on heroin. Yeah. Uh, he was one of the first ones that was supposed to go on stage, but refused. There were a lot of artists who, who, who were too scared to go on stage to open the concert because they knew we were yelling for music. Eight hours of waiting. They didn't want to be the first one out there. Tim Harden, I was really looking forward to going to go see because I knew his compositions, uh, Reason to Believe, The Lady Came from Baltimore. Uh, so many great songs and he had a little jazz uh, tilt to his sound. And although he was folk, he just, he was more than a folk artist. He, he was a jazz pop artist too. His voice was incredible, but he just fell apart on stage he was he was so high on heroin he couldn't perform at all and i'm like what's with this guy and no, I, almost, I almost feel bad for the incredible string band you call them four mopes <laughs> well <laughs> i i don't know why those four mopes were considered hip for about five minutes in the 60s They're, they were always awful uh it, they were pretentious and and just just plain awful. Uh, I didn't like them going there, uh, and 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 they certainly didn't perform well. Uh, and then the the other one that was bad was the Grateful Dead. They yeah. were terrible. That's 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 too bad. Um, <laughs> but you didn't like Quill either, right? You didn't oh, like Quill was that the Quill sounded like a bunch of guys banging on pots. Yeah, you said that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> hey, you can't like everybody. <laughs> no, you can't, especially at a festival of that size. But you survived it. I mean, I, you know, one of my dreams would be to see Jimmy. I mean, you could see it on the film, but to actually be there and watch Hendrix or The Who perform. Now, of course, Santana would have been a, a big one for me. Um, but I understand you guys had to leave. You were so pleased to find the car. Um, I don't know how you found it, but. Uh... That's a good point. We found it because uh, they erected Christmas lights mm. in the woods 
and we followed the Christmas lights. And I'll never forget the feeling of feeling safe and, and a, a, a camaraderie with my neighbors flashing the peace sign to everybody as we were leaving. Uh, there was no, there was no fear. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was black. Maybe it must've been about three o'clock in the morning when we left, the sun hadn't risen yet. We didn't know where we were walking, but we felt calm and, and a sense of peace came over us. And when we found the car, it was like the finding of the Holy Grail because mm. there was all our stuff. And we changed into dry clothes and we ate the soggy sandwiches that my mother had made for us. And we drank from the canteen. And I just had to roll one more joint uh, after all that. And, and, and Neil was, was a great sport. And I got behind the wheel and we started to get out of there. And then I realized I'm still tripping. I can't drive home yet. So we, we stopped, we, oh, we pulled okay. off the road. O'Neill didn't know how to drive a stick. Was that the problem? Yeah, it was a, it was, Neil was too young to drive. Oh, he didn't have his license. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was 18, Neil was like 16. Yeah. And so he couldn't drive. So we finally pulled off to the side of the road. We slept the next morning. We got up, I dropped him off at the house. I went home. And one of my favorite part of the book is the very end of the book. My mother opens the door and sees me and she clutches me to her bosom and she cries and cries and cries. Um, I said, no, Ma, I had a great time. That's great. And she stopped crying, I hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great story, man. Was the traffic wasn't nearly as bad going back, I'm sure, right? As oh, yeah. Back. We, you know, that that one lane highway, 17B, was stopped dead the day before the festival. Yeah. We went up on a Thursday. The concert started on a Friday. And at one point, the uh, it stopped for so long that we turned the car off and we played a game of Monopoly on the roof of the car. And yeah. I don't know if we ever finished the game, but under a blazing hot sun, we played yeah. Monopoly on the roof of the car and then we just kept going. Well, I don't think there was any other way there at the time. There is no other way there, even today. There's mm. still no other way into that Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, which is a great place to see music because it's on hollowed ground. Uh, and it's a beautiful museum and concert venue, which is right on Yasker's farm. And the funny thing is, so I recently reviewed uh, Steely Dan there, that you look at that hill, it's not as big as I had thought. It's, our, our car was just right up the hill. All I had to do was walk that, that hill and I'd find it. But at the time, it just seemed so immense because of the profound nature of yeah. the experience. We didn't know what we were gonna get into. We didn't know what we were heading for when we went there. Uh, we weren't even going to go. We were going to go see Led Zeppelin in Asbury Park that weekend. But the constant advertising on WNEW-FM with all these bands on the same stage at the same weekend, we had to go. Uh, and the ticket you bought meant nothing because it was free. <laughs> $17.50 for all three days at a head shop uh, in, in Bloomfield, New Jersey called The Last Straw. And when we realized we didn't have to, there was no, who do we give our tickets to? We're looking around. There's, there's nobody to give our tickets to. to so the we away. Well, thank you, Mike, so much.
for sharing again. And uh, people, listeners, you want to get the Woodstock book back to Yaskers Farm, you can get it at Goldmine. Just go to shop.goldminemag.com, click on books, and you'll find it. You can also find it under the Woodstock section. Well, Mike, thank you so much. And welcome. welcome. I'll, I'll, I'll meet you here again next year. Same time, same place. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Thank you, Mike Greenblatt. Okay, Goldmine listeners, you can go to shop.goldminemag.com and pick up Mike's book, Back to Yasker's Farm. It's right there. It's affordable. It's a beautiful book, hardback, and you could get it in our Woodstock section in our shop. You can also get the edition that Mike's Best and Worst of Woodstock is in, and that's the August-September 2022 print edition of Goldmine, which you can go and get in the store at Barnes & Noble and Books A Million, or you can go to shop.goldminemag.com and get it right there. In fact, we have a collector's edition uh, of that issue. It's a bundle which includes an alternate cover, a beautiful slip case that the magazine is in, and also you got two prints, photography prints that are suitable for hanging from the famed photographer Henry Diltz. So those are numbered and exclusive from Henry, right to us, and they would make be they're beautiful prints of the event. Uh, one is the crowd and John Sebastian. The other one is the Who performing live. Um, the Sebastian is in color, the Who in black and white. And of course, since they're Henry Diltz for photos, they're, they're quite special. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, have a good Woodstock anniversary. And we'll catch you next time on the Goldmine Podcast. <laughs>